Welcome to Business Buzz. This is Harold Littlejohn, CPA, here on another lovely Chico day. I'm glad you have time this afternoon to spend with me. I'm always trying to keep you updated on uh, business items, income tax items. Being a CPA, a lot of my business has to do with income taxes. This time of year, it's kind of nice. We've got a lot of extension returns to do, but it's not nearly as hectic, of course, as, as April would have been. And now we're approaching, we're approaching the start of summer, so it's really becoming a pretty nice year for me. Everything's going well and trying to keep up all the business of Chico when I can. So hopefully your business is doing well. If you're not a business person now, maybe you're going to be, maybe you used to be, maybe you're retired and you used to be in business. One thing about that is that even though you may not be in business currently, you might still have issues with income tax filing and questions about that. So I'm always someone you can use as a backup or a second opinion. Uh, my number is 895-3353 just to get the contact info out of the way. I've been a CPA for going on 28 years now, and I've been at the same location for about that long here on Mangrove Avenue. Mangrove has changed a lot. One of my clients this year was actually an elderly gentleman, and he was new to me. And when I got around to talking to him after he dropped his information off to my office, it ended up where the reason he came to my office, I always ask people where they heard me from or if they heard me on the radio or if they were referred by a friend or if they looked me up on Google. This man told me he came here because he used to own my office, but at the time that was his house. And I believe that was in the late 40s. This man was probably 90 years old when I met him just a few months ago. He had lived in my office when it was a house in the probably like late 40s to mid 50s. And I thought that was real interesting because he was telling me that my office is actually was actually his bedroom in the old days. My bathroom at the office is, I'm sure it's in the same location as the bathroom would have been. It's like a, it's basically like an old three bedroom, one bath house. I'm sorry, maybe a two bedroom, one bath. Wherever the kitchen was, that's been completely redone. I took it over in 1989, I believe. So it's kind of interesting, but this man had actually been the owner of that building, and at the time it was a residence. Of course, Mangrove used to be pretty much all residences. One of my clients told me they used to live in that neighborhood way back when, and where Madame Ruby's is, which is next door to the Chevron station, that's sort of across the street and down from my office. I believe they said there used to be a fraternity house somewhere near there. I do notice up and down Mangrove that there's two or three, oh, there's maybe five or six buildings that are still the old homes, of which my office is one of them. But I would say only one or two are left as actual residences. The rest have all become businesses. So it's really a, I always liked Mangrove a lot, though. It's kind of a commercial street. It's got restaurants, it's got coffee places, it's got like Great Harvest Bread. If you ever need a real good salad, they've got a good salad across the street. So it's a great location for me. I'm real happy to be there. I don't plan on leaving unless I hit the lottery and then I won't be working anymore. But other than that, I really enjoy Mangrove. It's, of course, changed. I've mentioned this before as far as the business buzz. There's a a lot of people that are out of work, and a lot of them do walk up and down Mangrove. They also like to camp on my porch sometimes and camp on other people's porches. And I'm not going to get political about this. I do feel that we need some sort of solution. If these people are getting help offered to them, then they must be choosing not to take that help because it just seems to be an ever-increasing number of wayward people who don't seem to really care whether they have a place or not. They seem to be pretty content with their backpacking and sleeping bag situation. Like I say, I don't. I try not to get political here. If I did, I wouldn't cover any business stuff. I'd be so busy talking politics, but that's just not really what the subject of this show is all about. What I did want to talk about today is a form that I just filled out for a client 
I actually have another client that needs the same form filled out at the right time. It's sort of a timing situation sometimes when you're dealing with IRS problems. What the form is, it is the form that requests a taxpayer advocate via the, it's kind of like a third-party IRS office, and it's called the Taxpayer Advocate Group. They basically step in with your IRS problem case and say, okay, you have had this problem. It can be any type of IRS issue, but it has to be an issue where you are at your wit's end. You just can't quite figure out any other step to do via the IRS, but you know someone has to help you with your problem. So it's called the Taxpayer Advocate. It's just a weird department. I don't think it's actually... It's inside the IRS, but I don't believe it's actually an IRS employee. It's probably an employee from a different actual place in the government. And they step in and they say, okay, look, you've got a problem. It hasn't been able to be handled through the normal IRS channels. We're going to step in and represent you as our advocate, and we're going to delve into this and go to the right desk and the right numbers and the right place in the IRS and try to work this problem out and get a resolution. That's where I'm at. And what was interesting is I haven't done one of the, I may have done one of these 10 or 15 years ago. I don't recall the last time I needed to do this. But I definitely needed to do this on this particular case. But the interesting thing I noticed was when I looked up the form that we needed to fill out and sign and send in, the number of the form is 911. I thought that was kind of cute. They have 911 as the emergency contact for asking for a IRS taxpayer advocate. I'll keep you posted on this as time goes by. Hopefully, I'll hear about, I'll hear back from this advocate group. Hopefully, within a week or so, and we can get moving forward on an issue that just won't go away. It's a, it's just an old, it's a discussion. It has to do with the fact that our audit was done via what's called the correspondence audits. They're trying to streamline their personnel, their offices. And so they came up with this idea, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago, called the correspondence audit. Instead of a physical person in the local office, either visiting my office or the client's office, or we take the information into the local IRS office, instead of that situation... We ship everything off to, it usually ends up being Philadelphia, and a desk in Philadelphia handles the audit. Well, here's the problem with that. You don't spend a lot of time talking with these people. You ship them a large packet of all the information, and you try to explain on paper what you could have explained to a live person at the IRS office here in a matter of five minutes at their desk. But instead of that, you're sending a packet of 100 pages that you have to write notes on and letters on and explain exactly what they're looking at. Then you wait about 30 days and they send you a letter that says, thank you for your correspondence, we'll get back to you. Then another 30 days goes by. Then in this case, they end up denying deductions that they should be allowing. And to make a long story short, I've run out of time, money, and paper to keep doing these correspondence deals with this correspondence audit office in Philadelphia. We formerly requested a local audit instead. I even had the local IRS manager, who unfortunately has since moved on. They seem to change hands a lot in this Northern California, Southern Oregon district for the IRS. Unfortunately, he's already gone, so I never really got to know him that well, but he was really nice. I had talked with him about it. He said, hey, if they'll let you, uh, I'll be happy to move that audit right here to our office. But it wasn't up to him to bring it here. It was up to them to release it, and they, you know how government employees are with turf battles. They don't like letting any of their work go anywhere. So in the, in the bottom line here, I had to do this taxpayer advocate request for this client. Hopefully, it'll have a real good ending. One of the pages this form asks for is, tell us about the problem you've had. 
then the next page is tell us what your desired resolution would be. I didn't sit there and ask them, oh, please allow all the deductions and get rid of this tax bill. All I'm asking for is a local office sit down so we can go over this with a local person face to face and not be facing this long distance craziness. It seems strange, but in my 37 years of full-time tax work, 27 of which have been since I became licensed as a CPA, the first 10 were before I was a CPA, I was what's called an enrolled agent at the time in the uh, earlier before I became a CPA. In my entire 37-year career of doing taxes, I've never seen an auditor give a blanket zero for the reasons this auditor gave. And that's as much as information as I'm going to give. To make a long story short, I'll keep you posted. It's just one of those stories about IRS business and Chico and Philadelphia and It's just something that drives me nuts. But I thought it was kind of funny. If you ever need an IRS taxpayer advocate, go to Form 911. And that's the one that'll that's the one that'll get you the right the right request. Whether they honor it or not, that's up to them. It's the government, remember? They make the rules. Moving on to business buzz. I always like to look at local business articles and see if there's anything that piques my interest. I figure if it piques my interest, it might be something interesting for you to learn about. I get a lot of my local info just from the Chico ER. I don't subscribe anymore, but I do look at their online whenever I need news about Chico and Chico business. This was an article about Lulu's, that online retailer that's become quite a large business. So I just wanted to share this with you real quick. Chico can crow about a number of local business successes, not only that have done well here, but hit it big beyond Chico. You know the names, Orient and Flume, Wolf and Poof, Sierra Nevada Brewing, A-Main Hobbies, and they didn't mention, but I would mention Build.com. That's a real big business that started in Chico. Then it says, don't forget Lulu's. It started when mother and daughter Deborah Cannon and Colleen Winter decided to open a dress and accessory shop in downtown, moved online, and became a hit. The business went totally online and now ships thousands of boxes a day from its Chico warehouse. It employs 700. That's huge. That must be, what, maybe number two or three behind the brewery and Chico State, and I don't know about build.com. Maybe they have 700. Anyway, I'm going to read on a little bit more. Busy equals success, but not like venture capital dollars do. That's what Lulu's is celebrating right now. Last week, it announced $120 million in investment from IVP and Canada Pension Plan Investment Board. IVP is described as a premier later stage venture capital and growth equity firm and Canada Pension Plan Investment Board, a global investment management firm. Uh, the general partner at IVP will be joining Lulu's board and CEO Winter said she's excited about where the company is going, which has hundreds of millions in annual revenue. Winter told Forbes.com in an article about the investment. Wow. So anyway, that I guess that just means that we have this large pension investing in Lulu's. They're on the board and maybe Lulu's is going to go from hundreds of millions to billions. Not sure, but it sounds kind of cool. So that's another Chico business that is definitely newsworthy. And I personally don't shop uh, Lulu's online. I'm not sure exactly what they're all about. I haven't had the need to do that. But it sounds like it's women's clothing and accessories. So maybe that's a good thing I haven't been a customer too long there. I'm coming up on break number one. I got some exciting business follow-ups for you. I love being the devil's advocate. I love telling you things that no one else will mention, especially your broker and your banker and people like that. So I've got a whole little stack of those interesting articles coming up. One of them, I'll give you a little teaser before the break. One of them is one of the people that I've been talking about before, and he's my favorite con artist, businessman, slash genius. 
And we'll get back to that right after the break. So stay tuned to Business Buzz. Harold Littlejohn CPA will be right back. Rick Box, founder of Unconventional Business Network, formerly Integrity Resource Center, with today's Integrity Moment. Empowering others is a great leader's strength. Whether as an individual or part of a team, people who feel empowered can achieve amazing successes. The greatest example of empowerment is found in John 21. Jesus had been crucified and resurrected. Jesus seeks out his disciples and finds them fishing. Jesus returns and reminds Peter of the lesson he learned over the previous three years. Jesus tells Peter, feed my lambs, then take care of my sheep, and finally feed my sheep. Peter had been discouraged, disheartened, and demoralized through the crucifixion of Christ. But Jesus reminded him of the power in his capabilities and purpose. To empower our employees, we need to remind them that they, too, have the tools they need. And those tools are gifts given by God. To learn more about Unconventional Business Network and doing business God's way, visit unconventionalbusiness.org. That's unconventionalbusiness.org. Hi, this is James McDonald, Bible teacher on Walk in the Word. You know, every day we receive emails and letters from listeners just like you, men and women who have been impacted by Christian radio. I got to ask you, have you taken the time to call your radio station lately? Whatever you're doing right now, just stop and pick up the phone. Your station needs to hear from you and know that you're standing with them. I can guarantee that your words of encouragement and financial support will strengthen this station long after your call's been made. Welcome back to Business Buzz. Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I'm looking forward to updating you on one of my favorite characters of the business world. If you've been listening to my broadcast previously, we've talked about a man named Elon Musk. He is the CEO of Tesla. And I wouldn't want to slander Mr. Musk on air, so I will preface this with saying that I am not positive, but I believe that none of his companies that he runs these days or has run recently have ever turned a profit. So that's what I'm, I'll start with that. And I will, I will preface that by saying, don't quote me on that. I'm not positive, but as far as I know, these are not profitable companies. So the first article I'm going to read from, and I, I won't bog you down with too much math, but I want you to understand the the enormity of the numbers that we're talking about here. The title of this article, and it's dated April 28th, Will Elon Musk be the next CEO to face a margin called death spiral? Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with the term margin call, what that means is, I'll try to simplify this as much as I can. Let's say I am a high-flying futures trader, and I'm buying pork belly futures contracts. Well, there's a thing called leverage. Let's say I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be trading 100 contracts of pork bellies, which is like bacon, and let's say that each contract controls $50,000 worth of bacon. So if I've got 100 of those, I'm controlling $5 million worth of bacon in my futures contracts. What the margin means is this. The place where I do this trading says, okay, we'll let you trade $5 million worth of bacon for a $50,000 margin. In other words, you send us 50,000 cash and we'll let you play this game of trading in pork bellies to the extent of $5 million worth of pork bellies. Okay, here's what happens. Let's say I'm betting that pork bellies are going up in value, but there's a major hog surplus and great weather in the Midwest and corn is cheap and all of a sudden hogs are not a big deal and there's too many of them and the price of bacon just got cut in half. Okay, my $5 million of bacon that I've been trading that I bought, 
for my $50,000 margin is now worth only uh, half of what it was worth. I just lost $2 million on my paper account of my pork bellies futures. Okay, here's what happens. I get a call from my broker that says, you have to send us $2 million today. That's called a margin call. Okay, I've, I've exaggerated the numbers, but that's the definition of a margin call. All of these players in the financial world are leveraging a certain amount of money towards gambling on bigger amounts of money. And that's what a margin call is. So I'm going to go ahead with this article about Elon Musk. In the annals of CEO margin call history, among the most infamous are WorldCom's Bernie Ebers, Chesapeake's Aubrey McClendon, and Steinhoff's Christo Weiss. Is Tesla CEO Elon Musk on the path to joining them? Now, I'll just go back real quick. WorldCom is one of those famous dot-com collapses from the 90s that broke the back of the dot-com bubble. And WorldCom would have probably had some giant margin call where everybody went bankrupt when everything went to zero. Okay, so I'm going to continue. Although it's been known for years that Musk borrows hundreds of millions of dollars against his Tesla shares to support his expensive jet-setting lifestyle of spectacular homes, actresses, and planes, not to mention child support, there was a new development buried in Thursday's release of the annual Tesla proxy statement. Directors and executive officers may pledge their company stock as collateral for loans and investments provided that the maximum aggregate loan or investment amount collateralized by such pledged stock does not exceed 25% of the total value of the pledged stock. Yes, Musk's loans are now limited to 25% of the value of the pledged stock, a policy that seemingly did not exist when last year's statement was issued. So anyway, this article goes on to point out that Mr. Musk, who draws an annual salary of $49,000, he owed $624 million over a year ago and subsequently paid interest on that loan while drawing this $49,000 salary and continuing his aforementioned luxurious lifestyle while pouring $100 million into his latest distraction, The Boring Company. It seems reasonable to guess that his current loans total approximately $800 million, which means, according to the new proxy, which they mean the 25% rule, they'd need to be collateralized by $3.2 billion in Tesla shares. As the proxy notes, Musk has currently pledged 13700000 of his 37 million shares to support those loans. It implies that a share price below $232, assuming a current balance of $800 million, he'll face either a margin call or the need to post additional shares. And earlier this month, the stock has dropped as low as 244 So what this article is saying, that uh, this Musk guy might have to keep adding and adding shares of his wealth as collateral. And remember... These are shares in a company that doesn't make a profit. So it says, of course, Musk does not have millions more Tesla shares he can and undoubtedly will pledge. Oh, he does have millions more Tesla shares he can and will pledge to meet margin calls. So an outright liquidation of his stock is unlikely to occur until the price of Tesla shares dips into the $90 range. However, the closer the stock gets to that figure... And considering the financial disaster Tesla is, that time may be closer than one might think. The more likely it is that the ensuing death spiral liquidation will be front-run and thus accelerated by observant market participants, perhaps at prices well into the 100s. Now, that I didn't want to bog you down with a lot of math, but all this is saying is that here's a guy that's owing probably $800 million, and his collateral is shares in a company that doesn't make a profit. That is not 
That is not a good situation. This is the type of thing I'm trying to warn you about. If your broker and if you have an IRA and your broker is investing in Tesla shares as part of your retirement and you're not aware of that, you might want to ask your broker why he thinks Tesla is such a good investment. Now, uh, before the uh, break at the bottom of the hour here, I'm going to read another quick article. This is just from the 21st of May. And this is about, the. it's called the Elon Musk's Great Model 3 Bait and Switch. Now, I can tell you personally, I have a client who I remember when the Model 3 Tesla was first talked about, and this has been a couple years now, it was promised as a low-priced Tesla that everybody could afford, and it was implied that the price would be around $35,000, which would make it affordable to millions of drivers as opposed to the regular Teslas so far that are like seventy, eighty, ninety thousand dollars $90,000. So what's happened is, I'm going to read this because the Model 3 has been touted as the savior of Tesla that's going to make it the the Henry Ford assembly line of the 21st century. But there's a little update here in this article. The Tesla Model 3 was supposed to be the entry-level electric vehicle for the middle class that, quote, made it up in volume, end quote. Leading up to the release of the Model 3, it was positioned as the people's electric vehicle that everybody could afford and that, once mass-produced, would help Tesla generate cash and profits consistently. The car's relatively modest $35,000 price tag was heralded as one of the key selling points, low enough that Tesla could generate the volume needed to gain operating leverage from selling it to the masses. But as Elon Musk himself admitted this weekend on Twitter, you're going to have to wait for the punchline. I'll get right back to this great article in just a minute. Stay tuned to Business Buzz. Harold Littlejohn CPA will be back right after this short break. Praise the Lord. I'm Sharon Knotts inviting you to join me and my dad, R.G. Hardy, on The Sound of Faith, mornings at 10, here on KKXX. If you are drawn to inspirational preaching, informative in-depth teaching, and biblical perspectives to current issues under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, then Sound of Faith is perfect for you, because we know faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. 10 o'clock weekday mornings here on KKXX. Chico's Christian Radio. It's time for Patrick Ranch Museum's 16th Annual Old Fashioned Country Fair in Threshing Bee. June 9th from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Located on the midway between Chico and Durham. Enjoy a tractor and draft horse parade, old-fashioned wheat harvest, dog demonstrations, children's activities, grand farmhouse tours, food court, live music, and train rides. Tickets are $5. Children 12 and under are $2.00. Patrick Ranch Museum's 16th Annual Old Fashioned Country Fair, June 9th from 9 to 4. For more information, call 342-4359 or visit patrickranchmuseum.org. Fellow Americans, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. You and me, we the people, owe it to ourselves and our posterity to know the Constitution and Bill of Rights and hold our leaders and representatives accountable to its life, property, and freedom-protecting principles. Unite with other moral and religious organizations to protect your creator-endowed unalienable right. America, bless God. Welcome back to Business Buzz. Harold Littlejohn, CPA. So glad you can spend part of your afternoon with me. I was talking about Elon Musk. While I had this break, I was just looking up a couple things. Yes, his prior business that he made his first billion on was PayPal. That's the service that he ended up selling to eBay. And I'd forgotten that part of the story. So I've just been talking about Tesla and SpaceX and all these businesses he's got now. So 
I don't believe, I just looked up the first quarter of 2016, Tesla lost over $250 billion. So that's basically like a trillion of, of losses in, uh, let me double check that. I, I got to make sure that wasn't, I got to make sure that was a billion or a trillion. That would be, that would be a big mistake to uh, have that part wrong. So I'll look that up in a minute. So anyway, I'm going to get back to this article real quick. Uh, Elon Musk admitted himself this weekend on Twitter selling a $35,000 Model 3 right now would cause Tesla to lose money and die. So so instead of selling this mass market vehicle, Tesla has focused on selling a more expensive version of the vehicle, a much, much more expensive version. In fact, more than double the base price. And if Elon Musk tweets this weekend or any indication... Tesla doesn't have any near-term plans to start selling the vehicle at anything close to the $35,000 price tag that was initially promised anytime soon. Instead, Musk was busy introducing yet another high-priced variation of the Model 3, this time the dual-motor, all-wheel drive Model 3 that could run a price tag of just under $80,000. So what my point of this article to tell you about is that this Model 3 was the deal that was going to make Tesla the winner, make it uh, go profitable with all these $35,000 electric vehicles that everybody could afford. And it turns out that they're not even close to getting a electric vehicle that's affordable to a mass amount of people. So uh, I believe that uh, if I own Tesla shares, which I purposely don't, uh, I would be very wary of leaving any part of my financial nest egg in a company run by a person like this who basically isn't even close to turning a profit in this Tesla business. And then I had one other quick headline just to let you know. This came out on the 23rd. Elon Musk goes full conspiracy theorist, blames big oil for Tesla's negative media coverage. Says, uh, it appears that billionaire CEO Elon Musk is convinced that big oil executives have taken time out of their perversely cash-generative workdays to pin the financial media against him and his cash-incinerating company. The latest surprising yet oddly not surprising news from the world of the Tesla media relations dumpster fire comes courtesy of Elon Musk once again taking to Twitter and raging about the powers that be who are holding Tesla back from its inevitable glorious zenith as the green energy company that will save the world. In his latest installment of tweets, Musk seems to have gone from agitated to full-on nervous breakdown as he took to Twitter this afternoon in order to do several things, none of which had anything to do with addressing Tesla's capital needs or bottlenecked Model 3 production. Uh, the, his, his tweet says, The holier-than-thou hypocrisy of big media companies who lay claim to the truth but publish only enough to sugarcoat the lie is why the public no longer respects them. Well, I think that's interesting because here we have Elon Musk, the guy who promised a $35,000 vehicle for everybody, electric vehicle that is not getting it done. So now he's jumping on the Trump-style tweet bandwagon and saying that, the media is fake, and uh, the holier-than-now corporate media is doing him wrong. So it's kind of interesting. So that's enough of my Elon Musk bashing for today. All I know is that I don't believe any of his current companies are making any profits. I will follow this up with a little uh, double-check on all that, but it sounds to me like he hit it big with the PayPal thing, and it sounds like since then it's been nothing but a smoke and mirrors uh, circus act to gather people's money into his stock and to become rich on that and then borrow against that stock while not making a profit in these businesses. I can only speak from experience. I've been a CPA for almost 30 years now. I've been in the business world doing income taxes for almost 40 years. I have yet to meet a person who does very well in the long run when they don't make a profit in their business. That's kind of one of the, one of the, I would say one of the main things to do if you're deciding on a business or 
thinking about buying a business, thinking about starting a business, thinking about gathering partners to work at a business, one of the main things to think of is, can this business make a profit? People have to realize that if you don't have a plan and you don't have and you haven't calculated things like break-even points and uh, timelines for goals, you can't continue a business that's not making a profit. It's not a good idea. So that was my little uh, rant about Elon Musk. I, I hope you enjoy those in information like that. I think it's great because you'll never hear this when you open up your letter from uh, Fidelity Investments and you see that one of their holdings in the money that you've entrusted them with, one of their holdings in their big list of stocks is Tesla uh, and uh, other air companies like that. Uh, it's very interesting to note that your money could be sitting on air like that. So my next little stop today before the end of the third quarter hour here is a, ar an article from uh, my favorite author, Egon von Greyers. It's called, Will Poverty, Disease, and War Lead to 3 Billion Fewer People? Now, one thing I want to point out before I start uh, giving you a little bit of information, the reason I read this guy's info is because, number one, I agree with him, and number two, it's very good information for you to have, and number three, it sounds, sometimes it sounds crazy, but it's really not, and I want to preface this with a little bit of information about a thing called the Georgia Guidestones. It's a granite monument. I'm looking this up on Wikipedia while we're talking. The Georgia Guidestones is a granite monument erected in 1980 in Elbert County, Georgia. A set of 10 guidelines is inscribed on the structure in eight modern languages and a shorter message is inscribed at the top. It kind of looks like a big Stonehenge thing. And what it is is it it's got a bunch of sayings on it, and uh, some of the uh, some of the things I've read about this is conspiracy theorists have uh, decided to kind of look into this, and um, they say that they're like a deep satanic origin. But I believe part of this guidestone thing actually mentions plans for a world where there's like only. Uh, you know, a half a billion people after after nuclear World War III. It says the engraved suggestion to keep humanity's population below 500 million could have been made under the assumption that war had already reduced humanity below this number. So what I'm trying to say is that if you hear of, of some talk about the world's population being cut in half, it's not that that's some wild imagination of a crazy person. It's actually been written... And one of the things about when I talk about when I talk about the powers that be and I say things like the people who run things, well, one thing they do like to do that I've noticed, because I've been reading these things for like 30, 40 years, one of the things they do like to do is they like to put their information out into the public domain almost like for almost like for a laugh, like we told you so. So if you ever think someone's crazy. You need to do a little bit of research on things like Georgia Guidestones. The other thing I recommend you look into is the Denver Airport artwork. Uh, that alone is a freaky enough thing. Luckily, I've never had to fly into Denver, but uh, I try to fly as little as possible. I don't really enjoy it. But if you look into just look up Denver Airport artwork if you want to know what these governments are doing. It's kind of crazy. So anyway, I'm going to read a little bit of Egon's uh, article here. There are 51 million American households that cannot make ends meet. This means that 43% of American households can't afford a basic middle-class life. Of these, 35 million are dubbed ALICE, which stands for Asset Limited Income Constrained Employed, with a further 16 million households living in poverty. It is absolutely remarkable that in the world's biggest and richest country, just under 50% of the households are struggling to afford a basic middle-class life and that 50 million people live in poverty. And this is after decades of prosperity and economic growth. What it proves is that the average person in the U.S. is seeing no prosperity at all. 
all of the official figures of employment, production, growth, GDP, etc. are just humbug. They are fake data which is completely misleading and paints a totally false picture. The official unemployment figure is 4%, but the real figure is 22%. There are 95 million Americans capable of working who are not in the labor force. The U.S. economy consists of a small minority which has benefited dramatically from the credit expansion and money printing. And then there is the big majority on low income with enormous debts who struggle to make interest payments on debts that they can never repay. Real median hourly wages have not increased in the U.S. for 50 years. Today, 66% of Americans earn less than $20 per hour. Trump was, of course, aware of the situation of the average American during the election campaign. And by appealing to this group, he won the election. But sadly, making promises is a lot easier than solving an insoluble debt problem. The U.S. and global economies are soon going to be crushed by the massive global debt situation, as I outlined my article last week. And I read you part of that a week or two ago. Since one-third of Americans have less than $5,000 in savings, they have nothing to fall back on when they lose their jobs and hit hard times. At that point, the government will default and there will be no Social Security net. They will, of course, print unlimited amounts of money, which will be totally worthless and thus have no effect except for causing hyperinflation. Corporate debt warns of imminent economic crisis. It is not just the personal debt situation in the U.S. And I'll get back to this in a minute on Business Buzz. Remember, negatives are positives because you're getting a little notification of what's really going on. Stay tuned. I'll be right back in one minute. Hello, I'm Gary Crossland. Everything in the Old Testament points forward to Jesus. Everything in the epistles points backward to Jesus. That's why I encourage people to read the words of Jesus every day. This is where emotional and spiritual health come from. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Well, where do you read his commandments? But in the Gospels. Now, I know that it's easy to get a little confused when jumping between one Gospel and the next which is why I wrote the Merged Gospels. It's where all four Gospels are literally translated from the Greek, broken down word by word, and merged back together into one beautiful chronological story with not one word of scripture removed. You can't buy it in stores. It's available only online at mergedgospels.com. It's great for new believers, for personal devotions, and for group studies. There's also an audiobook. And as always, you get to name the price. Just go to mergedgospels.com. Adopt US Kids presents Multiple Choice Parenting. You've messed up your daughter's haircut. Do you A, get spiritual? Mom, where's the mirror? Beauty is within. Oh. B, find the positives. Less time blow drying, more time texting. Or C, show empathy. Mom, you really don't have twinsies. I kind of love it. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. For more information on adoption, visit AdoptUSKids.org. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Business Buzz. Harold Littlejohn, CPA, guiding you through another 15 minutes of interesting commentary and hopefully education. I don't want to scare you, but I do want to prepare you. Hey, I am a poet. So this article, I'm not going to read the whole thing because I got something else I want to get to. What it is is that uh, corporate debt is now at an extreme and in a similar position as before the 1990, 2000, and 2008 economic crises and stock market collapses. So he's got a graph that shows corporate debt is at extremely all-time high, and it happens every time right before a big stock market collapse. And one part of this article I think everybody should be aware of that I think is a fascinating statistic. The paragraph is titled, A Poor World. 
But these problems are not limited to to the U.S. Almost 50% of the world's population, which is more than 3 billion people, get this, live on less than $2.50 per day. And 17% live in extreme poverty on less than $1.25 a day. The World Bank has described, defined the international poverty line as $1.90 at $1.90 a day, and around 2.5 billion people are below that line. Now, that's pretty amazing. So if you take for granted the fact that you're living on, you know, let's just throw a number out. Uh, I know clients with Social Security, they're maybe living on $1,500 a month. Well, that's $50 a day. Half of the world lives on $2.50 per day. That's pretty amazing, and it does kind of make you glad you live in the U.S., but uh, I just want to get to the final paragraph of this article real quick. And the title of this paragraph is, Commodities Including Gold Will Explode. Finally, let us look at a chart that predicts the future very clearly. Commodities are at a 60-year low relative to equities, Now, remember, equities are stocks, as in Tesla. Okay, this doesn't just mean that stocks will collapse. More importantly, many commodities will surge from here. Part of the reason for this is the coming inflation leading to hyperinflation and a weak dollar. Commodities will be a major beneficiary of the coming repricing of assets. As bubble assets like stocks, bonds, and real estate collapse, commodities will surge. This will lead to the biggest wealth transfer in history. And the interesting thing in this article, and the article is is the one about three billion fewer, and his website is goldswitzerland.com. So if you want to look up that article, just you can go to that article on goldswitzerland.com. It's it's on the first page, just go down a little ways. But the interesting thing is the chart of the ratio between commodities over equities is at an all-time low. So it's amazing what potential the gold mining stocks, the gold and the silver, it's amazing the potential that those commodities have right now for absolute price explosions like would be, you know, unthinkable is the only way I can describe it. Now, if you've been listening to me, you would realize that you should have part of your savings in physical gold and maybe even a little in physical silver. That's my recommendation. I, I'm i not a financial planner. This is for entertainment purposes only, but I'm just telling you what I do. I always put a little bit of money each month instead of just into the savings account. I put some into physical gold, and that's just the way I am. I think you should too. Now for the last... Uh, oh, I've got maybe 10 minutes left with you today. I hope you're having a nice afternoon. It's It's another nice Chico day. In fact, Silver Dollar Fair is coming up real soon. I'm planning on being there this evening. I'm looking forward to it. Maybe I can see you there too. So I'm going to read a little bit from my favorite book, which is called A Course in Miracles. And if you ever need to know more about it, uh, one good way to, to learn more about it, if you're interested, is go to YouTube and type in ACIM, which is the abbreviation for A Course in Miracles. And some of the best videos that I've seen there, it's a man named, his last name's Wapnick, W-A-P-N-I-C-K. He's kind of like the godfather of the course because he's the one who actually uh, helped put it together and edit it and get it published back in the 70s. That would be a good education if you're interested in learning a little more. But what I wanted to do today was I'm going to read you a few real good pages from it right at the start of the book, actually. But I want to preface it this way. When I first got this book, and I'm looking at the page that I started reading, I remember the night I got it, I was at Barnes & Noble, my wife was at the fabric store, and I found a copy of Course in Miracles in the discount section of Barnes & Noble, so I bought it. I think it was $12.95. And I was sitting in the car waiting for my wife to come out of the fabric store, and I'm reading chapter one, which is called Principles of Miracles, and I'm like, I am just clueless. This was probably about 10 years ago now, 10 or 11 years. I really did not understand what I was reading, but I did get interested in it. I decided to go further, and I found other books that described 
ways to learn this course, ways to approach this course. And it's basically been a daily learning for me for the last 10 or 11 years. It's a daily thing. I, I, it's the only book in my life. It's the only topic or thing in my life that I've ever actually had a daily interest in that doesn't disappear. In other words, I've had hobbies in the past. I love music. I love picking up the guitar. I love photography. I love taking pictures and stuff like that. But it's not a daily thing that I think about every day, and this is. So that's why I'm sharing this with you. And if you have any interest, you can learn more. Uh, you can learn more just typing in ACIM and reading about it. But the main thing is this. I'm going to preface what I'm going to read to you with a little bit of a definition. This whole thing of miracles, it's a course in mir- of a course in miracles, not the course, a course. And what it is is that I went a year or so probably reading, reading, trying to study, trying to learn about it, and I really didn't have a handle on what does it mean by miracle? What is a miracle? So once I got that kind of figured out in my head, everything clicked in a lot better every time I read part of this book, which I've read numerous times now. And so the main thing to remember is a miracle is a correction. And the main thrust of this book is that sin would be a word that would imply that you can't fix, you can't fix it. In other words, the old fire and brimstone where all sinners were born of original sin and we can never get out of it. And atonement in the biblical sense, atonement means that we're going to pay for our sins, blah, blah, blah. The interesting thing about the Course is that it redefines atonement and basically atonement in the Course means correcting. It means you've done the corrections. And the basic correction is that, and I've talked about this before, if you observe your thoughts, The part of your mind that's observing your thoughts is the right mind, according to the Course, and that's the mind that you need to try to be in. So this is not some weird thing where you have to sit in a lotus position for five hours in order to get to a certain place. All it is is you need to observe your thoughts and bring your mind back to that right side of the mind that's able to observe what I call the wrong mind, which is the mind that's completely always chattering to you, this, that, and the other, you got to do this today, blah, 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 get to work, you're going to go broke. That, that little voice in your head is the one you need to start observing instead of listening to. So that was, that's my little preface to the word atonement and the word miracle. So I'm just going to read a little bit from chapter one, uh, paragraph uh, section three called Atonement and Miracles. And this is written from the viewpoint of the Holy Spirit. Now, you can think of it as Jesus if you like. I tend to think of it as Holy Spirit, and I tend to think of it as just the right mind talking talking to me. I am in charge of the process of atonement, which I undertook to begin. When you offer a miracle, now remember, a miracle I told you is a correction. When you offer a miracle to any of my brothers, you do it to yourself and me. The reason you come before me is that I do not need miracles for my own atonement, but I stand at the end in case you fail temporarily. My part in the atonement is the canceling out of all errors that you could not otherwise correct. When you have been restored to the recognition of your original state, you naturally become part of the atonement yourself. As you share my unwillingness to accept error in yourself and others, you must join the great crusade to correct it. Listen to my voice, learn to undo error, and act to correct it. Now remember, this error is simply listening to your voice in your head as opposed to observing the voice in your head. If you step back and observe the voice in your head, you have done the correction. That is the atonement. So I'll read that again. As you share my unwillingness to accept error in yourself and others, you must join the great crusade to correct it. Listen to my voice, learn to undo error, and act to correct it. The power to work miracles belongs to you. I will provide the opportunities to do them, 
but you must be ready and willing. Doing them will bring conviction in the ability because conviction comes through accomplishment. The ability is the potential, the achievement is its expression, and the atonement, which is the natural profession of the children of God, is the purpose. Now this chapter goes on to say, Heaven and earth shall pass away means that they will not continue to exist as separate entities. My word, which is the resurrection and the life, shall not pass away because life is eternal. You are the work of God and his work is wholly lovable and wholly loving. This is how a man must think of himself in his heart because this is what he is. The forgiven are the means of the atonement. Being filled with spirit, they forgive in return. Those who are released must join in releasing their brothers, for this is the plan of the atonement. Miracles are the way in which minds that serve the Holy Spirit unite with me for the salvation or release of all of God's creations. So I'm just going to pause here for a second. This is where, if you could just sort of grasp the definitions that I gave you before I read that, and that was only, that's less than one page of this book, and the book actually has, uh, oh, 1,390-something pages. If you can keep an, keep an idea out for the definitions I gave you, the atonement is simply correcting your belief that your real mind is the one that's chattering all day long. That is not the real world. Now, as you get into this book further and further, there's tons of stuff here. He does do a lot of discussion about the real world versus the world you think you're living in. But not to get too far afield when you're first studying this, because it sort of gets a little freaky when you think of it that way. But what this whole thing is talking about is that the real world isn't physical. The real world is that vantage point that you're coming from when you step back and observe your thoughts. Now, there's a whole thing of psychology that's pretty modern, and it's called mindfulness. And the, what's interesting, if you look up mindfulness, it's a whole way to kind of reduce stress, make your life better, to be honest, the idea of mindfulness is pretty close to this idea of atonement in the course. When you read about mindfulness as a process to try to reduce stress, it will tell you that you need to observe your thoughts, you need to step back, and you need to go to that right mind. So all along, all of the Buddhism and all the Hinduism, all of the different things that say you know, from uh, from thousands of years ago, saying that the world is an illusion, everything ties together with this idea that it's that right mind observing your thoughts that really is, and I won't call it the secret, because it's not like law of attraction and the secret where all of a sudden you hit the lottery because you're thinking positive thoughts. That's really not what this is about. What this is about is realizing that all of your daily thoughts, the ones I call from the wrong mind, the chatter, all of the chatter, that is just the, that's the mind you need to observe and you need to take it a lot less seriously as you go through your day. I will keep trying to fill you in on a bit of course things whenever I have a chance like this in the last segment of the show. I'm really interested in you at least learning a little more about it, but keep in mind that Miracles are corrections, and the atonement is merely stepping into the right mind and observing your thoughts instead of letting your thoughts tell you what's going on because those thoughts are not really the real world. I'm going to leave you with that for today. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. Business Buzz will be back next week. Have a great day, and I'll see you at the fair. KKXX, Paradise, K280GL, Chico, and K283AR, Chico, Yuba City, Marysville.
With SRN News, I'm Keith Peters in Washington. A Korea scholar says the cancellation of the Trump-Kim summit puts off a meeting that really wasn't ready. Scott Snyder is a senior fellow for Korea Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations in Washington. He says the abrupt cancellation reflects a growing recognition that the idea of a U.S.-North Korea summit is premature. I think that it is evidence of an argument inside the administration that more time might have been needed to prepare. Snyder says the cancellation buys Washington and Pyongyang time to better understand each other and make it more likely that when a summit did happen, it would not just be an event, but produce some denuclearization. He adds that North Korea's destruction of nuclear test facilities tells us little about the country's capabilities or intentions. Warren Levinson, New York. Top lawmakers have been briefed on the Russia investigation in two White House coordinated meetings. The classified meetings were held at the Justice Department and on Capitol Hill to review top secret documents about the federal investigation into President Trump's 2016 campaign and whether there was improper use of an informant. Over the past week, the president has accused the FBI of spying on his campaign. The White House says Chief of Staff John Kelly and lawyer Emmett Flood showed up to give remarks but did not stay for the briefings. Greg Clugston, Washington. Law enforcement officials say Harvey Weinstein is expected to surrender to authorities Friday morning to face criminal charges in a months-long investigation into allegations that he sexually assaulted women.